The second one is just going to be being minority founders and just like having conversations and just consistently thinking every single time you go into the meeting. The word that's constantly in my mind is fit, right? And I think fit is basically like an, a tech industry term that has come to mean doesn't fit with what I want. Welcome back to The Founder's Couch. This is a show about the most inspiring student founders and their intrepid journeys of starting their own thing. I'm your host, recent Stanford grad, Katherine Jing. As COVID-19 continues to rampage the world, what my guests today are building could not be more relevant, timely, and pressing. Today on the show, we've got Ibrahim Alanur and Iruwole Akande. Ibrahim is a recent 2020 grad from Northwestern and hails from Florida. Irawole is an incoming MBA student at SMU Cox Business School and hails from Nigeria. The two are the co-founders of City Health Tech, a public health startup committed to using technology to build healthier communities and mitigate the global spread of infectious diseases. So far, they've partnered and piloted with over 10 organizations and schools and have deployed and iterated on over 100 prototypes to arrive at their first product, Opal. And they have raised over $25,000 from a multitude of pitch competitions, such as Northwestern's Wildfire Pre-Accelerator Program, University of Chicago NSF i Grant, Foxconn Smart Cities Smart Futures Challenge, and Northwestern VentureCat. Now onto the show. Let's get Ibrahim and Irawole on the couch. Ibrahim and Wole, welcome to this show. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us on. First off, um, how are you guys doing? Doing great. Excited to talk about some hand washing at six <laughs> o'clock here on Chicago as a, a dust storm heads to our city. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. It's like, yeah. yeah. Great time uh, to be alive. Great time, honestly. This whole year, isn't it? Um, I guess just starting off this conversation, could you guys tell me a little bit about where you're from um, and where did you grow up? Yeah, so I'm from Oviedo, Florida. It's a small town out of Orlando. A uh, very, very small suburb. It's next to a university. And my mother was from Trinidad and Tobago, who raised me and my uh, three siblings, my two other siblings as a single mother. And so I, I think coming from the middle of nowhere in Florida and then finally getting to a city actually had a really big impact on me and seeing like, what does it actually look like to be in a city? And well, we'll get into that later, but that's where I'm from. Yeah. And um, I'm from Nigeria originally. So I'm, uh, I'm from a small satellite town in Kubwa in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria. So I moved to the U.S. about eight years ago to pursue my degree at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Ah, interesting. Yeah. That's so cool. Like a, a kid from Florida and Nigeria somehow come together in the making yeah. of this company. So I've given uh, listeners a bit of a rundown of what City Health Tech does, but how would you describe what your company does in your own words? Our company is focused on building the cities of the future. That's why the company is called City Health Tech. That's our more broader vision is how do we, how do we reinvent the way we live, knowing that everybody's going to be living by cities by 2050. Today, what we're doing is focusing on preventing the spread of disease. We're being focused and obsessed over health infrastructure. And our current product is Opal, the first of its kind hand-washing assistant that sits next to a sink, has a full-color screen, and encourages and tracks hand-washing. So tell me a little bit more about how you guys got into this space of hand washing. I know it starts with Ibrahim's mother as a nurse. Yeah, so I was sitting in class at the time and we were talking about design, right? And it's all about how do you solve a problem? What makes good design? Good design 
there's nothing worse than seeing a door that says push or pull. It's a great example of a bad design. And I was just talking to people, you know, that's what you do as a designer is just talk about people's problems, especially for the class assignment. And my mom had talked about how that day she was getting trained to wash her hands. Now imagine you're a teacher sitting in front of a classroom of 50 nurses having to sing the happy birthday song twice. And that's what you're telling people to make sure they're not carrying the spread of disease. And to me, I thought that was ridiculous. And, you know, there are little small things that as you get older, you realize are not a real thing. And then you know, I realized doctors don't even wash their hands. So she ended up doing her nursing practicum and found the average doctor washes their hands for eight seconds. And at this time, you know, I'm doing soul searching in my university, trying to figure out what I'm interested in. I had really latched on this idea of smart cities. I thought it was a really interesting blend of business engineering, economics, and this seemed to be a relatively straightforward problem. You know, it's like, okay, how do we get people to wash their hands? Well, at least that's what I thought uh, until I got into the world of hardware. And um, we had, I had got a few friends together. We had put some sensors, bought some things offline, and just tried to figure out, one, how do we track hand washing times? Because anything's better than how they're doing it currently, which is with a stopwatch, hiring somebody to watch people wash their hands. So getting access to that data, I thought would be really critically important. And then two, how do you actually encourage that behavior? So we had these four LEDs that we used to encourage hand washing to 20 seconds. And then that's when I met Wole. And I realized that I didn't know what engineering was. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> I love that sigh, Wole. <laughs> um, so I guess at this point in time, you meet Wole. You met him at a conference, right? So what was that story like? Yeah, so at the time I had been interning at a company called UI Labs that had two labs, the City Tech Collaborative and the Digital Manufacturing Design Innovation Institute. They rebranded, so don't worry, it's a really long name. And um, I had joined the Short Stick, so I was the only intern for, the, for that time. And no one else wanted to go to this conference. It was at the Bosch Connectory, right below 1871 here in Chicago. And so I had to go man a booth for like two days just talking to people about what we're doing. And then I just happened to run into Wole, who at the time was the only young person in the room and we just struck up a conversation about oh hey you know this is what i'm doing for my company and i'm always looking out for stuff for my company for city tech collaborative and it's like oh an iot expert and iot conference you think it'd be less rare to meet an iot people but like he was the only actual engineer i think i remember meeting this is a bunch of business people so anyways he's saying oh i'm an electronics engineer recently graduated i'm like oh, okay so he just graduated a little bit of experience uh has some engineering experience and i was like all right well oh, well, here's something that I'm working on. And so further than just my uh, company, I was like, oh, you're interested in startups. Well, here's what my startup is. And so I gave him a little quick pitch and I told him that he's washing his hands wrong. And I think that always gets people, it's like 95% of people do not wash their hands correctly. You should be washing for the full 20 seconds. Uh, that's just equivalent to singing a happy birthday song twice. And if you don't, if you wash your hands for five to 10 seconds, you're actually helping spread the amount of disease. And if you wash your hands for 10 seconds in about two hours, it'd be as if you hadn't washed your hands at all. Interesting. So, Wole, I guess, what were your first impressions of Ibrahim and, and what were you thinking? Um, I thought it was interesting because, like, um, so the reason why I personally was at a conference was because for, for a while I was telling, like, you know, my boss, I was telling, like, the managers in my company that we need to get more involved with, like, the startup space in Chicago because, you know, we're an electronic distribution company like all of the people that made electronics before have already made them. The only people that were going to be making anything new that we should sort of chase were going to be startups. But, you know, when you're in industry, it's a bit tricky to chase startups, right? Because some of them might fail, some of them might not go anywhere. So that particular conference, um, I went because I was thinking to myself, I want to connect with startups. I want to see who's doing something cool and I want to see whether I can make my, 
my company some money, right? I was like, okay, yeah, if I get a design win, I'll be able to work with startups. I'm going to do everything that's cool about what I'm doing. So when I met Brahim, I was initially interested because of um, the UI Labs. So he told me how UI Labs is a startup working in the manufacturing space. And I was thinking, hey, UI Labs is going to like be a good partner to have with my company. We could see whether they have like, you know, small businesses or like big companies that are testing out new products within that space. And we could get like, you know, a design win in there. That's where my head was at. But when, after he pitched me, um, hand washing, right? I was like, oh yeah, this is what this kid's working on. Like, you know, let's see, like, you know, what happens. So I actually left our meeting after he gave me my pitch and I went to go wash my hands. So I go like wash my hands and like, like I call myself a power hand washer because I wasn't one of those nasty people before coronavirus, right? So like, I actually wash my hands really well. So I wash my hands, I time myself 12 seconds. I'm like, there's no way that was 12 seconds. So I tie myself again and wash my hands for 20 seconds. And I'm like, damn, that's a long time. So I call Ibrahim up and I'm like, hey, I'll come see what you guys are doing out in Northwestern. So I go there, I meet the team. They introduce me to some of the ideas. And then I'm looking at it. I'm like, eh, this might work. This might not work. I'm sort of like in between. But I think just over time, um, I thought about a lot of like my past you know, wanting to do like a startup but never getting a chance to just because as an international student, you're forced to make difficult decisions about what your future looks like, right? So I'm looking at it like, this would be a nice time for me to do something I'm actually passionate about. It's going to be like separate from my work, but it's something I could actually get into. So I came on board to manage like the engineering team. And that's sort of how, you know, we started off. Very cool. And so when you came and met the team again at Northwestern, what was that meeting like? Like, were you sure at that point that you wanted to join or, or you know, did it involve some thinking afterwards? It did involve some thinking afterwards. Okay, so one thing I'll say is that, um, so IIT is a very small school in the Chicago area, but one thing I was able to get out of that, like my experience at IIT was that we had a school called the Institute of Design. and I stand on almost hallowed ground saying the words that I don't think any school in the world teaches design as well as ID, right? The Institute of Design at IIT. So like when I came in, the first thing I was thinking is that like, okay, this is a cool idea. This is what they're working on. But I felt like there were a lot of holes in like, you know, the product process, like how they were thinking about it, even from an engineering standpoint. And at that point, I wasn't so sure of the problem, right? So remember, the only pitch I'd received was about 95% of people washing their hands. But what's really sold me was when like, I actually saw a list of stats and facts. I think we have a document called like facts and figures. And if you see the stats that are associated with like hand washing and the impact it can make on our community, there is no reason why no one should care about the problem, right? You talk about how there are billion cases of the common cloud in the United States or hundred billion dollars lost in preventable diseases, 48 million, like, you know, um, food acquired illnesses in the US, like 1.5 million healthcare acquired illnesses. Like all of those stats point directly to how, why we should care about the problem. And I think just like in the beginning, coming in with my doubts, not being really sure. And over time, just seeing all of those numbers materialize, seeing like how people really didn't think it was important. That's sort of what really pulled me in to um, what we're working on. Also, we happen to get really lucky. So 
uh, they're exactly like how we're working on our device as a very small time of flight sensor, it has a small display and a little bit of IoT. And it just happens that Wole is an IoT enthusiast, you know, it's his role. He also works specifically in small electronic displays and was worked with these sensors. I don't know how it worked out, but also had all this experience in, with distributors and this random knowledge that was like such a perfect fit for the role. A match made in heaven, I bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, made in heaven. I don't even know how, like I, I was talking to uh, my partner the other day and I was just saying like, what were the odds, right? <laughs> I'll run into someone who will make me be passionate about a project that I never knew that I wanted to be off until I heard about it. Always <laughs> be pitching. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Ibrahim is just a, a great pitcher, so I can understand kind of the pull towards the idea. Yeah. Uh, so I guess a question for you guys. So where where was the product at that point? Um, and where's the product now? <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is funny. I can actually talk about that. So when, when I came on board, right, they were using these um, battery-powered piezoelectric sensors that were meant to detect the vibration. And right off the bat, I just went, not a viable solution, right? The reason why is that I've done a lot of work with piezos, and um, even if you get them really sensitive, right? It's so easy for you to get inaccurate information. So piezo is a vibrational sensor. So we're detecting the flow of water through this thing, which is a great idea. I'm just gonna, just gonna say that. Yeah, it, it, it is a great idea. It's absolutely a great idea. I do not disagree, right? But then the thing about like piezo is just because it's so low fidelity, right? That it's very easy to like have errors. Right. So unless you're using like a really, really expensive, you know, piezo sensor, right? You'll never really be able to get that data to where you want it to be. Right. So right now you see like, you know, people are making different types of solutions using like piezoelectric sensors. But at that time, the sensor they were using, I thought it was a really good idea, but I didn't think it was going to be sustainable in the long run. Right. Then there were so many things that we had to figure out. Right. What if like, you know, someone was just like, you know, just drop something on the counter, it's gonna detect it. You know, how will you know when it starts? How will you know where it stops? There were very, there were a lot of things on the side that would like, you know, distract from the yeah. Probably I'll like- From my perspective, the reason why I built that device was just to show someone the idea. It did a good job and enough conveying the idea itself. And that was I really agree. all I was going for. I figured if I had something, it showed that I would put a team together, I was willing to create something that I could at least show to a restaurant owner or some whoever to just start pitching. Because at that point, like, see an ugly baby that at least it's not just a PowerPoint or a rendering. It shows that we actually did something. It wasn't the best, yeah. but it got me a wole, so it worked. So, so it worked. It, it did exactly what he said it was going to. Because when I came on board, I started thinking, wow, that's actually a brilliant way to think about it. Every single person is thinking about flow sensors, open up like the faucet, put something in between. That's what everyone was thinking about. But this kid comes up with an idea that like, yo, we could totally just like detect the vibration. It was actually brilliant, right? But the technology is not there yet. So when I came on board, right, we started doing like a bit more user testing, going through scenarios, but I'd worked on something prior. I'd worked on something similar prior, right? So this was for patients with congestive heart failure. And the one feedback I got from that particular work I did while at the Institute of Design at IIT was just like interaction. It becomes less of a technology problem 
and it becomes more of a people problem. So the pro what we're trying to solve was less about how fancy could the technology be or whatever. It's like, what will actually get people to do what we say they need to do? And that's why we made the pivots, right? So we went from like, you know, this lower fidelity product to like, okay, what is the problem we really want to solve? Does this device solve it? That device will get us data. That device will get us like, you know, people like getting to 20 seconds, but will it actually engage them to do that? And that's why we moved away from something that didn't have a display and towards something that had a display because then you can actually increase the ability you have to engage and have people interact with the product. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. furthermore than just having a display, it's such a valuable experience if we're actually able to do this on the amount of things we'll be able to show people. It's a communication platform, getting you know, reminders to be healthy or mindful or education. Uh, I think that's what really got me excited when thinking about when you have a screen someone for 20 seconds, you have a captive audience, they can't even be on their phone because they're covered in soap. What, what would you show to people? I think that's what gets us really excited is like, what is that behavior change? And then also you're going to be preventing the spread of disease. It's a win-win. And those are the business models that I love. You guys talked about like pivoting towards, you know, not having a display to having a display. Was there a specific like user, you know, inside or like a specific number of users that were telling you to do that? Or like, how did that pivot, the idea for the pivot come about? Uh, I think it goes down to education. So with four LEDs, right, like thinking through how you deploy this. And I think for us, we want to be as frictionless as possible. If I were to go to an elementary school and I had four LEDs on that device, like the way we were originally doing it, I would have to teach all the teachers that one, okay, four LEDs, every LED is five seconds, green means go. There's a larger educational component to get to the point where people understand. Like it's kind of like a traffic light is a great example. A traffic light has red, yellow, and green, but who taught you that? Right? Somebody had to teach you that physical process. And so with our screen, we're able to teach you at the site. We don't have to have any external intervention while we still think education is super important. And that's been a big component of what we do is health community education. But it's also, we can put that anywhere. And then also there's just other different forms of advertising, sponsored content, and then just forms of engagement you get with the display. So that was kind of more of a thinking of like, what would be the most frictionless solution? I think that's a big reason why we push towards displays because it offers some form of education. So, you know, don't quote me on this. In two to three years, that vibrational sensor, that's very simple. Once people understand that 20 seconds is critically important and people wash their hands, then you can actually have a cheaper, simpler solution because people understand it because it's like the traffic light. And that's exactly what I was going to say, right? So for us going in at the top of the uh, moment, right? So, uh, so before, like everything that was going on right now, the biggest problem, with the solution that we're trying to solve was education and knowledge about the problem. So the biggest problem we have as society is when we do not know we have a problem. <laughs> so we basically spent like almost a year, right? We had to put pause on like product development to create like, like Ibrahim will come into every meeting and he ask the question, how can we make hand washing go viral every single day? <laughs> How can we make hand washing go viral? Because it was the only thing we could think of that would make people take like the problem seriously. And a virus made hand washing go viral, ah. as you can imagine, right? So come 2020, there's a virus that basically is making every news network, every human being, every office, every everyone is talking about hand washing. So we went from trying to convince people like, yo, this is a real problem to like, yo, if you're not solving this problem, 
you aren't doing anything. It's like that's perspective. How we literally had designed our entire business to be focused on working with elementary schools to fundamentally change the educational system on how they're teaching hand washing community health behaviors. So we were like, you know, it's gonna be a long game. We'll focus on educating an entire generation. And then overnight, hand washing in the news. I can't tell you how bizarre it was when it was like on Trevor Noah and everyone's like, stay safe, wash your hands. It's crazy because we had you know? focused on getting this entire experiment. So before coronavirus, we had actually orchestrated the largest academic study on the impact hand washing plays on educational performance and outcomes. It had never been done before. So we had this giant, amazing study we were working on that overnight, hand washing everywhere. Coronavirus is taking lives and hand washing is literally saving lives. And so for the last three months, we've just gotten an overwhelming amount of press. We've been doing a lot with bigger businesses and really trying to move forward with this as fast as possible. Yeah, I feel like market timing is everything and this was just the most opportune time. <laughs> yeah. And in a sense, it like kind of, you know, makes your marketing cost down to zero because there's so oh, many other literally zero we never have to pitch the problem anymore right we can literally go into a pitch and say look around you and then say our solution because right. that's like how important the problem was wow so you mentioned um ibrahim that you guys were you know working with schools how has that changed now that you know schools are like education is turning remote and you know, coronavirus is still a thing. So schools are very, I would say, not a very risk place. They're very risk adverse. They want to have a proven solution. We got lucky with a few schools and we were able to test. But I think now with all these things going on, it's going to be more and more critically important to provide something as we look to reopen schools. I think people think masks or temperature checks are going to be enough. But what kid is going to wear a mask all day? It's just not going to happen. So I think from our perspective, we're still focusing on getting into these educational environments. But one, we need traction enough to pay for our device. So we're working with a lot of big B2B enterprise companies uh, that we're trying to focus on first. So we get those big wins, get to the first thousand devices. Then as we prove out our case study, we can start deploying these around schools. So that's kind of what our product roadmap looks like. There are a lot of places that I think are called critical infrastructure, like schools. There are going to be some like restaurants, you know, people who do food processing. I think that's something else on our roadmap is with food uh, manufacturing plants to make sure our supply chain can stay open. But there are a lot of things that like people need to be doing. I think it's been exciting to see that schools are focusing on sanitizing. As I think that's one thing that really hurt me is just looking at going to a school and seeing it dirty and hearing that from a lot of principals that their school is just filthy and their Airmark or Sodexo was not doing their job in keeping their schools clean. And hopefully if we can remove that factor, then hand washing is going to be critically important in how we prevent the spread of disease. Yeah. And um, just something to just like tack on to like what Ibrahim said. I think the one thing that um, I was sitting on a panel um, at Morehouse a couple, a couple weeks ago, last week actually. And one of the important things I realized during my conversations is that every time we talk about health, we talk about health after the fact, right? We talk about like, okay, um, someone has the flu, you get treated. Someone has this, you get treated. Every single time we're talking about treating, we're talking about insurance, we're thinking about everything after the fact. There is so little that has been done in the sense of prevention, promoting like proper hygiene so you can prevent the spread of diseases, right? And then the things that cause the spread of diseases are very small things, right? So mm -hmm. things like, you know, washing your hands, Things like, you know, wearing things in a proper way, you know, like, you know, not working bare feet. So many things that you, you sort of don't think about 
but they actually adversely affect the community that you live in. And I think one thing that we want to do different at City Health Tech is to start thinking of those problems people aren't thinking about as problems. Because we've proven we can do it once. Like, damn, we're going to do it again, right? And that's what we're thinking. What are the other things before the facts that people don't think about that we can use technology to help them use better, to help them do better? And that's the whole point of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, that makes total sense. I feel like the whole coronavirus situation definitely puts a spotlight on the prevention side of things and trying to, you know, kind of bolster that end. Yeah. So while you guys, you know, um, have been working on uh, building this into a more high fidelity um, prototype, what kind of resources did you tap into, whether it be at Northwestern or IIT? So for the last like three years, we've been based out of the garage, Northwestern's Entrepreneurship Center. Um, they have like a physical space, a maker space. They give us a desk. They have mentors. Entrepreneurs and residents have questions. So we've leaned pretty heavily on them, uh, like the entrepreneurial, uh, I would say, faculty, I would say, at Northwestern. So I'm a, I minored in entrepreneurship as well. So there's a lot of like teacher and professor resources. And then for the last year, we won $25,000 in non-dilutive funding. So just a bunch of brands and pitch competitions. There was a pre-accelerator program at Northwestern that we did as well as the NSF i program at UChicago Booth. So we did a lot of these small programs that gave us enough money and resources to really get plugged into a lot of different communities and at least get to like a few devices we could start piloting with. And now we're trying to raise the big boy money. We're trying to get to $1.5 million in the next month and a half to be able to get to market as soon as possible and start fulfilling a lot of our customers' orders. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. And I think for us, like I think something I should say about resources and just sort of like how impressive like I think, you know, a few of the schools in the Chicago area have been just like providing those resources, especially mentors. I think when I, when I graduated, right, there was so little focus on the importance of entrepreneurship at the undergrad level. Right? I feel like some, some, a few schools are good at doing it, right? You have Stanford, you have Northwestern, I think they started about like 2015. By the time when I was graduating, there was zero focus on that, right? IIT was making engineers and just churning them right into the world to go work for like, you know, these companies in the Chicago area. And I think like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so when I came to Northwestern, I saw like the garage and sort of like the resources that have been made available, right? From 3D printers to like, you know, lawyers that you can talk to to like, you know, just like people with like good energy trying to design something. I was really impressed. And I have to say like, it actually inspired me. So every Sunday I would make the hike up to um, Evanston, right? Where Northwestern is, I'll go from the city and I'll go spend time there because it actually made me want to create something. And so I think that's something there, I have to- uh, I, I would go drive and pick up Wole. <laughs> not in the beginning <laughs> he would he would actually wake up in the morning come all the way to chicago pick me up go back to evanston and then take me back to i mean i'm worth it so it's kind of uh, <laughs> gotta just gotta remember that part of the story yeah yeah i always miss that part though <laughs> but it was nice the car drives helped us uh, debrief before meetings but yeah um every sunday for two freaking years yeah, wow. a lot of gas money. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, something I want to discuss with you guys before moving on to the fire round um, is sort of the challenges and insecurities that you faced along the way. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're always 
you know, getting feedback, whether that be negative, positive from customer or investors. I guess, what are some of the challenges that come to mind when you've been building this? And also what are the points in time where you felt like this might be the end? Hmm. I feel like every time could always be the end and all the times could always be successful. So like at any moment, you, you have to, I'll, I'll take a step back first and say that being an entrepreneur requires a lot of privilege. There's a lot of privilege inherently in being an entrepreneur and that ability to take a risk and focus on something like that. Like I did sacrifice, I'd say a lot of my coursework time. And right now I am fortunate enough to not have to go get a job to make sure I'm feeding my mom or something like that. I mean, I didn't grow up with a lot of means, but even people who are like being a U.S. citizen has been a huge value. I, I can't tell you how important that has been. So I just want to make sure that before we talk about all the other things that it is hard to be an entrepreneur and there's a lot of privilege that's required to do that. But I think from my experience, it's just been that I have been wanting this for six years. When I was 18, I said I wanted to have a million dollars before I was 25. And I was just obsessed with entrepreneurship. I had just even learned what the word was. And I decided that's what I wanted to be. So I was working, solving problems, trying to learn how to be a leader for five or six years. And every time I failed, I knew that I still had more time that I was gonna continue trying and see what, ha what happened. And I think as long as you're working on something you truly believe, you're not gonna have any moments of doubt on whether or not it's gonna be a thing. Now there's resources, like right now, I'm in credit card debt. I, uh, you know, I just graduated without a job and everyone's asking me, oh, what are you doing? It's like, so is that paying? And I'm like, you know, let me talk to me in two months. So it is incredibly inherently risky, but there is some times where, especially in college, I think college is a great time to take that risk feel what it's like to, you know, put yourself in a situation where you really have to do things that you are doing because you want to do it. It's a very rare opportunity in life where you actually have that moment where nothing else is on your mind except what you want to be working on. And that's like the freedom that I only start to feel just this week, but I love it and I'm excited for it. And I've also had a lot of people just tell me, don't get a job. Like a lot of people are like, you're, you know, you're just not going to fit in. Even my boss, who I work well with him, he's uh, one of our uh, one of our pilot customers too. He's like, you should not work for people. You should really try to focus on being an entrepreneur. And there's just always been a lot of positive signals of people just trying to push us forward. And I think that's kind of what I help fuel myself with is just people telling me and recognizing that this is something worth it. And not just that the problem is worth it, but it's just the fact of me knowing that I'm going to continue pushing forward. And if one door closes, I'm going to open another. Like people always talk about how there's limited opportunity. I see an infinite amount of opportunity that if you give me the chance, I will eventually open a door that's going to give me something. And so one door closes, I got ideas. I think that's just who I am. I'm a very creative person and I tend to have a lot of ideas. And so I, I think those ideas while not fully fleshed out, help me feel that at least there's always going to be something else. And Wally's life sucks because of it. Cause I have so many. <laughs> that's funny. I have ideas too. <laughs> The better ones, the ones that can actually be implemented. <laughs> but other side, I think, uh, I think for, I think the biggest challenge that like I face is that you see my story is a little different, right? Because um, when I came from Nigeria, um, I'm a brilliant kid, right? So I've always been brilliant. I've never had to like try too hard to be, right? So um, I knew that like when it came to like doing the work I needed to do. I'll always get it done. I'll always be good at school and whatever. Uh, I'm a second generation entrepreneur and that's the, my dad is an entrepreneur, right? So my dad, um, we own a company back home. I've worked with the company for almost like nine, 10 years now. I've worked on a few projects that have been successful. So I know what it means like to taste the success of starting something and being great at it, right? 
But I think the challenge, like just being in the US, is just like the assumptions and the privilege people do not realize are involved in entrepreneurship. That's the first one. The second one is just going to be being minority founders and just like having conversations and just consistently thinking every single time you go into the meeting, the word that's constantly in my mind is fit, right? And I think fit is basically like an, a tech industry term that has come to mean doesn't fit with what I want. It's no longer about like, what your company culture is. It's not about what your VC culture is. It has nothing to do with that. It just has to do with something that makes you happy. It's just like something a lot of people are like, oh yeah, it wasn't a good fit. Like screw that, right? I think the biggest challenge for us as minority founders is that we're not coming at the beginning of like, oh, these guys are going to be prospects. They are going to do well. They don't look at us in the future. They don't look at our our vision of what we want to do. Everyone is sort of focused on what have they done, right? So we've seen our, like we've seen peers in the same space that haven't had like have the traction that we have, right? And we see them having conversations, and we're like, we should be in those spaces having these conversations, but we are not, because people are looking to us like we have something to prove. You know, I'm looking at myself like I moved from Nigeria eight years ago. I'm in a place where I can buy anything I want. I can drive any car I want. And I still have to prove myself coming from nothing when I get into a room with investors. And I'm like, we've committed two years of this. And we'll still have people that ask me questions like, oh, so I'm going back to do my MBA. We're going to a meeting and someone will ask me a question like, why are you going back to do your MBA? Don't you care about your business, right? And no one thinks about the fact that for the last two years, I sacrificed brunch, the ultimate adulting time for two years, right? To go on the drive all the way to Evanston and spend time with my co-founder and all of the people that we're mentoring and working with to get our product to where it is right now. But everyone thinks that like, oh, you're trying to take the easy way out when I don't have a choice. You know, recently an executive order was signed basically preventing like new people from getting on the work visa. And those are things that if I decided to get a work visa next year to work on my project, I can get it. I can get it, you know? So there's like challenges that are not directly associated with the business that's actually preventing us from getting to where we need to be just because of the society within which we live. And I think from my standpoint, that's a big problem. Would I over, will I always overcome it? Certainly, right? But would I do with less of it? Right. 100%. <laughs> I think that's something that uh, me and Wole bond, I think, over and have deep respect for each other is just the fact that we both came from, I would say, relatively, you know, not great childhoods. We've had a lot to overcome as children. We've all worked from very, very young age, uh, you know, to make money and being very cognizant of that, but also being really well at school. So I've always done well at school. I'm a Gates Millennium Scholar. So I actually got my entire undergraduate paid for, as well as my PhD and master program. So that's something I never had to worry about, which was super exciting. But I think those moments of like the combination of being able to overcome some deep adversity, but also being really freaking smart and being able to do the coursework, uh, there, there's a lot of respect that comes from that and being able to continue to be positive. Because so many people, you know, really have like, a, it can really be hard to pull yourself out and continue to be working. I think a lot of people who are in our position, 
it's a very fine line between being super successful and really depressed. And I think there is like a very big line there that a lot of people fall onto. And you, you can see it sometimes in people just because it is really hard. There are so many factors outside of your control based on the way you look or where you were born that really keep you down. And just another thing that you have to work on as a barrier. So while a guy who's next to you, you're not trying to pick on white males is just running or running in quicksand trying to get to the same marker or trying to beat that person. Mm, wow. That was, yeah, such a good perspective that I'm getting from you guys in terms of being minority and international founders. It's definitely something I wanted to shed a light on. So I'm glad that you guys brought those points up yourself. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for letting us talk about it. Yeah, of course. So I guess on a more um, quicker note, so we can move on to the fire round where I basically fire you guys five quick questions just to end the conversation and, and uh, kind of keep you guys on your toes. How does that sound? All right, I'm here for it. All right, so most memorable experience at Northwestern, Ibrahim? I was a professional magician for like three years. So that was really fun. I actually got that career kickstarted at Northwestern. And one of my favorite experiences was just performing in front of a, a student audience of like 500 people. And then the next day having people go, oh, that's the magician. It's just one of small, funny stories. <laughs> <laughs> favorite class at Northwestern and why? Uh, hmm. Favorite class would be growing and monetizing a fan base. It was an interesting art class that I took accidentally, registered for the wrong class. And it was a full room full of artists who wanted to be entrepreneurs. And I had no clue about that. And I learned a lot about the art and entrepreneurship world. Absolutely. And Wole, what about quarantine activity that keeps you sane? Oh, I'm a, I'm a huge soccer fan. So I play FIFA all the time. That's like my number one. <laughs> my number one thing when I'm not working, I play FIFA. <laughs> Love that. Um, it's, it's almost like uh, you're working out at the same time. <laughs> yes. What about one word or phrase that embodies your startup journey? I'll say worthy. I think it's worth every single second I've spent on it. I, I think through like all of the things I've done in the past three years, I worked a 40-hour job. I, and the one thing that has been worth it to me has been the work I've been doing with City Hotel. I was going to say extra because we're real extra on this team. <laughs> you see the Zoom background? It's not worthy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So last question, guys. So where do you see City Health Tech going and what are the next steps for Ibrahim and Wole? I'll take the question. I will say within the next five years, I hope to be a global company solving world-renowned problems that are relatively easy to focus on and focusing on building the cities of the future. So I'll be working with city leaders across the planet um, what does it mean to design a better city? Um, yeah, I think for me, mine might be a little different. So what I really want to be doing is, what are all those problems that you don't think about? And how can we bring them to the forefront and solve those problems? Like no matter how small it is, how can we use technology to solve those problems? I think that's a big thing. And I think for me, the, the future I'm really excited of seeing is not even just like externally on the impact I want to make, but internally on the team that we want to build. I think we want to be that next generation of what a company is, right? So you had like, you know, the IBMs of the 90s, you had like the dot-com, you have like, you know, the Airbnbs. We want to be that next generation of company that would change what it means or what work looks like for wherever works with us at City Health Tech. Mm, that's really inspiring. Well, great. It was really awesome to have you guys on the show. I really appreciated all the kind of perspectives and stories that you brought. And, you know, definitely will keep me thinking 
um, for these next few days. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you so much for the time. That was such a thought-provoking conversation. Glad to discuss not only about how Ibrahim and Irawole met and got the product to where it is today, but also about the challenges minority and international founders must often face. It's a perspective that I think is so important for many people to hear. Thanks again to Ibrahim and Irawole for coming on the couch. I'm excited to see where they go with City Health Tech. And thanks to all of you for tuning into this episode. Make sure to subscribe to Founders Couch wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any feedback, suggestions, questions, or any existential thoughts, write to us at founderscouchpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're all about the social media life and want to see more from us, follow us on Instagram at founderscouch. Friday after next, I'll be digging deep into another student founder's journey. Make sure to tune in July 10th for another Founders Couch Friday. I'm Catherine Jang, and you've been listening to The Founders Couch. See y'all soon.